Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to discuss why Concord matters for the worship space. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is Pastor Randy Asbury. He is the pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Asbury, welcome back to Concord Matters. Well, thank you, Sean. It's good to be back. Yes. And I never actually had you on in my hosting responsibilities. I used to be part of a team and then COVID happened and my team fell apart and I ended up becoming the full-time thing. But I I was on at least a couple of times with Charlie Henriksen, one of the former co-hosts. And so we have been on together before, but the first time is myself as the host. Yeah. So a real honor to have you on and we're obviously familiar with each other. And just to kind of set up this episode today that we're going over I was really appreciative of learning from you in our interactions around the St. Louis area here and so forth, that the congregation you serve, Hope Lutheran, went through a renovation project. And you shared with me some really, I thought, fantastic pastoral ways to lead your people through the considerations of what you want to think about and consider as Christians and what we confess in the faith when you go through a renovation project. And I think that these principles can apply when you're building a church or, you know, those sorts of things. And so kind of the larger topic of, again, as our title sets up for us, the worship space, how do we want to consider the space that we worship in as Lutheran Christians? What are some of the principles for that? But then as you've recently walked the people in your congregation through this process, I think you're a great guest for us to kind of help us do that on this show and some of the principles and things to consider. So do you want to go ahead and talk about just a little briefly how you got into this and and walked your people through it here at Hope? Yeah, it's funny you ask me of all people and suggest that I'm some sort of expert because for years I've thought I never want to do a renovation or build a new church because of all the hassle that goes into it, the details, what colors the paint, what colors the carpet or other flooring, that sort of thing. And I've known other brother pastors who've done big projects and then boom, they take a call right after that, go elsewhere. (laughs) So I said, no, not for me. And come along 2015, we are preparing for our 100th anniversary in 2016, and one of the items put on the uh, docket for discussion is, hey, what about renovating our sanctuary? We've known we needed to renovate the organ for many years now, and that was part of the package as well. And so we're thinking, okay, celebrate our first 100 years, look to the next 100. What can we do to highlight that? besides just an anniversary celebration, and turned out to be a renovation. (laughs) And with the help of a generous bequest that came long before that, we were able to say, hey, we have X amount of money. Let's see what we can get for this money in the renovation. So then plans started. We went through the whole committee thing for a year, year and a half, planning and looking at options and what do we want to do. 
that's probably where a lot of our energy wants to be focused, what drove our decisions. But I can fast forward and say we've been back in the sanctuary for just over a year now, enjoying it very much. We've improved the acoustics. We've improved the lighting. We've made some statements in how we have placed some of the, what shall I say, furnishings. And we've added some beautiful artwork as well as painting and, and bright colors. And of course, yeah, the organ as well. That's all practically new. It's renovated, but I like to call it, we've got a supercomputer that doubles as an organ <laughs> with that thing. But we'll focus on the renovation. So a lot of good things there that we've been able to do. Yeah. And again, I think this is a wonderfully pastoral thing that you just mentioned some of the things, the acoustics, the lighting and things like that. I think sometimes we would maybe categorize those sorts of things as kind of more practical matters. You know, you just want good lighting so that people can see and, you know, you don't want a place that's too loud or too quiet or things like that. But, and maybe it's because I'm a pastor, but I sit here and I think, but those sorts of things play into what we confess with our worship space as well. What sort of acoustics do you want? What sort of mood do you want to set with the lighting? Again, none of these things are the main thing. And, and perhaps what we'll talk about as the show goes on today is how these all relate back to the main thing, which is the confessing of the faith, the divine service, the receiving of the gifts and God's precious gifts to us in that. But they all relate together. And so there are a lot of things to consider. And I think it's a great pastoral move to sit down with your folks and say, well, let's consider some of these things. And I know that you walked your folks through a Bible study, for instance and things like that. And of course, this is Concord Matters, and so we're operating from the Lutheran Confessions as well. So go ahead and give us at least a few points of those points of consideration that either you brought in as you led your Bible study and led your people through this, or uh, as a foundation for this show that would be good to think about and consider. Oh, sure. Thank you. And yeah, I'm glad you can see it as a pastoral matter, things like lighting and acoustics, because for years, we went through dimmer lighting also very dead acoustics. So acoustics don't travel that well. And anybody coming in from outside can hear it. I could hear it all the time too. And you have to wonder, okay, why is it that way? Well, some of it was the structure of the building, others, the decorations put in like carpet, that deadens the sound. Well, when you have a dead acoustic in your space, then the organ music or other instruments the music cannot travel, it just dies there, and people cannot hear it, and therefore they cannot sing with joy or gusto at all, right? It hampers the singing. Same thing with lighting. If you have a dim lighting, when people are trying to look at the page on the hymnal where the hymn is or something in the bulletin that they need for the service, if they're squinting their eyes and having a hard time seeing, then that diminishes the worship as well. So yes, these are very pastoral care kinds of things. So what we had to do was backtrack and say, what are the needs we have? Lighting and acoustics were the big ones. But then other details were, okay, what do we want to do? How do we want to beautify the space? And that too is pastoral care. Because when you have a, I'll call it open, inviting space, uh, it just speaks, hey, welcome to church. There's something special going on here. In my, You mentioned my Bible study. I did actually a few of them, but a big one was, what's worship like in the Bible? And what principles, what things can we take from that to apply to a renovation project? One big one was in Exodus about the tabernacle, and then later in First Kings about the temple. And when you read those accounts, we didn't go through in a whole lot of detail, but you read those accounts and you notice something very fascinating happening there. 
God's telling Moses about the tabernacle and then Solomon about the temple, use only the best materials, gold, silver, purple cloth, and so on. So use only the best, right? We want to give our best back to God in worship. So that's a pastoral care thing as well. So that's what you lead a bunch of Lutherans in your congregation through to realize, you know, we can do things well. It doesn't have to be done on the cheap or on the sly or like we're ashamed of what we're coming into. We can do it well. That's very fitting for God's house and for proclaiming his gospel and giving out his gifts. So those are two big passages there. Another part of that story, especially the uh, tabernacle, I don't know if you remember this part, Moses has the people themselves put in to the offerings the gold, the silver, the jewels, the materials, the wood, the purple linens, all that. And so they keep giving and giving. And at one point, Moses has to say, stop, stop, we have enough. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what, Exodus 29, 30, somewhere in there, we'd have to go find it. But And then another thing that comes out of that story is when Moses, I'll say, hires or contracts with Aholiab, the artist, the craftsman, and he's kind of the head guy. That's another detail that we used to say, hey, we're going to hire contractors and artists to come in and do this stuff for us. We want them to know what's going on. We want them to respect this churchly space, this sacred space, just like this guy in the Old Testament there. We want them to do it well. In other words, you and I have been in Lutheran churches for a long time, and we know that sometimes the well-meaning volunteer will fix something and it's really not quite fixed, and it really does not look good at all, right? That happens in all churches. Well, that's something we wanted to avoid in the process. We want it to look good, crisp, clear, clean, beautiful, colorful, you know, all these kinds of things. And so those are some of the principles we use. But the really big principles, I think, come from our confessions themselves. I would look to Augsburg Confession, Article 7, first of all where we confess what is the church. It's that congregation of saints in which the gospel is purely taught and the sacraments are correctly administered. That is the heart and core of the church at large, but every Lutheran congregation. So then the question becomes, how do we confess that in our space? whether it's the organ playing well and being well-tuned and up-to-date and having uh, nice pipes and mechanisms that work, or if it's the lighting or the positioning of furniture, I'll call it, in the appointments might be another term, in the uh, chancel or throughout the sanctuary. How does the space itself speak or proclaim that we're here for God's word, to hear the gospel, and to receive his sacraments? So that's one thing we did as a committee early on. We went through kind of core values and what we called programming statements that we could send to the contractor, the artist, and say, here's what we're looking for. Now give us some ideas back. What do you think would fit? Especially in the artist category, you know, with paintings and design and overall look. And we wanted to stress those things, okay? What is going to proclaim the gospel? Well, most of our churches have things like a pulpit and a lectern. Those are part of the church space. They are sending a message just by being there. What do you want that message to be? This is where God's word is read. This is where God's word is proclaimed. That sends a message. The baptismal font, the altar up front, those send a message. What does the altar say? Ah, this is where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the sacrifice Christ made on the cross, and then he gives us his body and blood, and then that gives us the gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation. 
And that's also the place for our sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise and prayer. Take the baptismal font. What do you want that to proclaim? Well, that's our new life in Christ. That's where we are washed clean from our sin. That's where we are brought into the church. Right? So these are the overall theological considerations we were making. And then that informs how you do all the details. Okay, where are you going to put the pulpit and the lectern? Do you need both pulpit and lectern? Some places have what they call an ambo, Latin for both. It serves both purposes, reading and proclamation. Where do you put the altar? We had no choice. It's against the wall, and it's pretty firmly set there. So we weren't going to be moving that out anytime soon. But that might be an option in some churches. Well, do we move it out from the wall so the pastor can face the congregation? Or keep it against the wall so the pastor has to turn toward the altar for different parts of the service? So all kinds of details like this. If I can kind of sidetrack here a little bit into uh, kind of an architectural phrase, this is something I wove into my Bible studies and presentations to the congregation as well. There's an architectural saying called form follows function. First, you have to figure out what's the purpose, what's the function of this space, this building, this room, and then you figure out the form of it. I'll give you a great example that our advisor gave us, our consultant, in one of our first meetings. He says, think about a house built in, say, the early 1900s, 1910s, 1920s. There are a lot of those around St. Louis here. And where's the kitchen? It's always in the back, far back room of the house. And it's always the smallest room in the house. And why is that? Because back then, you did not gather there. You did not eat there. It's just that's where, you know, maybe the mother and the wife cooked the meals or the servant or whoever was in that place. You only needed room for somebody to cook. Then you brought the meals into a different room, right? Fast forward to today, what do we like to do with the kitchens? Make them part of the great room. This big, spacious area in many modern homes the last several decades, three, four decades. And you have maybe the kitchen sink and tabletop or bar top right there in the middle so you can see into the living room what are the kids doing. <laughs> you can socialize. So what the function is it's a social space. Now it takes on a bigger area. And so that's form follows function. That also applies in the Christian church. And so I use that as a kind of a hook to get people interested. Form follows function and our Christian confession, because that Christian confession informs the function. Which makes me think about what you were saying earlier, too. I really like that phrase. You said, what do we want this to say? And you gave the example of the lectern and the pulpit. This is where God's word is read from and where God's word is proclaimed to God's people. And so you want those to say that's what goes on here. But then it also, I think, as it relates to this function, it also gets us to what we think about that, too, and how it looks. And it comes back to, we just concluded a sort of mini-series with Chaplain Sean Denzer, the director of worship, and looking at the principles for worship and so forth. And we re-emphasized again and again, you know, it's not legalism, but we're avoiding chaos on the other end of the tension. So we don't want to be legalistic and say, your altar has to be like this. Could we have an altar that is just a simple table that sits there and holds the bread and the wine that is Christ's body and blood as we confess in there? We could. We certainly could do that, right? Right. But why do especially Lutherans, and it's not just because we come from the Roman Catholic Church and didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater like some of the other Protestant reformers did that have made some of those moves, but we say something 
with our altars, the way that we design them, you said yours is firmly attached. You're not going to be moving that anytime soon, right? right? There's stone in a fix there. And, <laughs> it, it's and, very heavy. <laughs> and it says something about what we believe, right? Correct. About the Lord's Supper. And I think when we're considering the simple person coming into the worship space, you see that versus a table and you say, wow, they think that that must be really important. I mean, just even the most simple person could come in, a child, and this is exactly what we want them to learn. A child comes in and says, wow, they must think that that's really important. That had to be a few thousand dollars to build that. (laughs) Or the details of some of the other things that you were talking about. It's not just for pure beauty, but the fact that we do put our best into it. And we don't just do things on the cheap, which is always a tension. I mean, you got to balance budgets and things like that. We understand all of those tensions. Right. But at the same time, when you put your money in the budget into something like that, that makes a grand statement in and of itself. Well, they must think that this is important. Right. And then that's a great opportunity to teach. It teaches something in itself, but then also a great opportunity to teach. And let me tell you what that important something is. That's Christ's own body and blood given and shed for me for the forgiveness of sins. Exactly. And if I can pick up with the table versus altar thing, This is absolutely true. There's nothing in Scripture that forbids or commands this sort of thing. Most of our Lutheran churches have an altar. Some have a freestanding altar or table. Some may prefer a table, and I get that. There are times I wish I could be facing the congregation during parts of the communion liturgy, right? But we also need to think through the theology of this, because the table— while it can be helpful for the face-to-face contact and saying this is Christ's body and blood in this meal for us, for the whole church, that's great. I would support that 100%. But at the same time, there are plenty of people in Christendom today that only look at the Lord's Supper as a family meal. The idea of it being Christ's body and blood does not even enter into their minds or conversations. It's just oh, it's a communal gathering. And so that could be one downfall to just the table there. A downfall to the altar could be the sacrificial understanding that Rome has had for many centuries. Oh, this is where we re-sacrifice Christ. So you want to avoid the extremes there, the faulty thinking. But as long as you keep that confession that the church is gathered around the gospel, purely proclaimed, and the sacraments given out according to Christ's own institution— Yes, that is Christ's body and blood on that altar slash table, whichever one it is. It's not just a family meal. It's God coming to us to give us his body and blood for forgiveness, life, and salvation. So as long as the teaching can still be there, that's the key. And absolutely. And as you bring it back again, that this is a very much a pastoral matter. Yes. Because we're working through the theology of what is it we say about the Lord's Supper. And again, relating back to the miniseries I did with Chaplain Denzer, we talked about this very much with Adi Afra, right? Is that on the one hand, it is neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture directly, some of these matters, right? Right. But what you're also balancing is in times of persecution, they cease to be matters of Adiaphora, our confessions lay out for us. But then and also when it comes to clear confession of the faith over against other denominations. And so it becomes a pastoral matter again to consider with my people, where does it come down to? in terms of what is at stake here with our understanding of the Lord's Supper. If I look at my context and I get to know my people and I talk with my people and we work through this and we're considering the theology and I see they're getting the understanding that this is a re-sacrifice of the Mass as the Roman Catholics hold and things like that, maybe when we make some intentional decisions 
to kind of, I always give the idea, I fancy myself a cowboy, you know, when you ride a horse and your saddle starts to fall off to one side, sometimes you got to stand up and put your foot down, your boot down into the stirrup mm-hmm. on the other side right, to recenter right. the saddle. And so, you know, maybe, maybe you do the same sorts of practical decisions to kind of recenter your saddle, if you will, in terms of your theology. Although, as anyone who may listen to the show with any regularity knows, I think our greater danger in our American context is too much to the reform side and their thinking. And so sometimes you make considerations about maybe even our own Lutheran folks sitting in the pew are getting the idea that, well, yeah, that's Christ's body and blood, but maybe not really firmly believing that. How can we consider things that reaffirm and confess, oh no, this is something more than just bread and wine received in a spiritual way, as the reform might say. And so you got to know your theology and work with and teach your theology about what we confess with the Lord's Supper as it relates to all of these practical matters. And so, yeah, or to come back again to even what may seem like minute things, you talked about carpet in the church, and I realized this in my dual parish Wonderful saints at both of the congregations I serve. This is not meant as a a slam on either end of that, but one of the congregations I serve has a lot less carpet in it and it has hard pews. It's the old hardwood pews and so forth back to the early 1900s when it was built. Both of my congregations, church buildings, very old. And the organ, it's very lively sounding. And even in the dual parish, people always say, oh yeah, that congregation, which is a manual West Point that I serve, That congregation is the singing congregation. They really like singing. And then at St. Paul's, which is actually the larger congregation in the dual parish I serve, there's a lot of carpet. There's padding on the pews. It was renovated, I think, in the 80s or something like that. You know, So some considerations of comfort and things like that that went into the decisions. And so I always tell my folks, I think St. Paul's has good singers as well. You just can't hear them because all of the sound just gets sucked up. Right. And so it does relate back to, again, what do we think about the importance of music and singing? Why do we have hymns in our worship? Right. And what do we want to do? And why do we want our people to sing? And I, again, I think very practical matters, but there's a lot of theology that goes into it. Theology of what we confess. What do we confess about the Lord's Supper? What do we confess about our hymnody? What do we confess about all of these things which again are covered in our Lutheran confessions, they're covered in scripture, there's a lot to think about and becomes a very pastoral matter of knowing your people and working with them and instructing them and teaching them. And so I think, again, it's just a fantastic way to bring that in. Yeah. And if I can pick up on that acoustics thing there, a funny story. I went to a doxology conference way back in, what was it, in 2009 when I first went through the program. And one of the sessions, one of the uh, events involved bringing lay leaders. And so the uh, congregational president I had at the time came along, as did an elder. And we went to the place where the retreat was held, and they had chapel services there in a beautiful sanctuary. And when we had our first, what was it, Vespers or evening prayer service when the conference started, my uh, congregational president at the time said, Oh, wow, this is what a sanctuary sounds like with no carpet? You can hear each other sing? I said, yeah, that's right. I'm going back right away and taking up the carpet right now. <laughs> <laughs> so pastorally, I had to stop and say, well, wait a minute. We need to teach and <laughs> bring others along. But yeah, it's very obvious when you get those differences there. And just on a lighthearted note, I'm convinced that all of the carpet must have come uh, bargain sale prices because it all looks the same. 
or maybe the time when people wanted the church to look like the movie theater. I don't know. It's just one of those fun things I've always wanted to chew on. Yeah. And also, too, we want to be sensitive. As it's a pastoral matter, I think my vicarage congregation, it's interesting, backing up for a second, you said at the beginning that you never wanted to take on a renovation project and things. Right. My vicarage congregation was in the midst of a very large reno- or building project. They were building a new sanctuary and renovating some of their old space to lead into that. And it was a big, huge project. And I became convinced on my vicarage that I never wanted to take that on either just because there was a lot of fighting and things that went on. But my vicarage bishop, Sig Kuntz, I remember him very wisely saying, well, maybe this is a great opportunity for us to talk about how we live in Christian love and forgiveness with one another. Oh, there you go. And so it's just another great thing. I mean, it all comes back and relates back to the faith and the living of our Christian faith. And there is so much going on, so many principles to consider. We're going to go ahead and take a break right here, but so much more to dig into, principles, things to consider, not just the sharing of our stories and things of that nature, but things that we actually want to think about and think through as we consider why our concord matters, why our agreement in Christian confession matters for considering the worship space. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Cross Defense is the show where we talk about curious topics to excite the imagination, equip the mind, and comfort the soul with God's Word. Join me, Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio, or anytime on KFUO.org, or even your favorite podcast app. My friends, our foe is a fierce enemy. Our only defense is Christ on the cross. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Randy Asbury, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in St. Louis, Missouri. And as we set up in the first half of the show, you have gone through a renovation here at Hope, and we're kind of using your experience to transition to some of these principles and things that we want to talk about in this show that could be applied in whether you're renovating, building project, building a new sanctuary again, just how do we consider our worship space? And I thought in the first half of the show, you gave us great things to think about from your own personal experience as well. I love how you also gave us the principle, architectural principle, but something that we are concerned about as well in confessing the faith of form follows function. And you talked about what do we want this to say, especially how we might put it in our terminology as pastors. What do we want this to confess about the faith? And we talked about all of that. And so as we continue to get into these principles a little bit more here, let's talk a little bit more about this then. As we consider the worship space then, what were some of the things that you had to consider? What do we want this to say about our faith? Right. Two things come to mind right away. Well, first of all, we talked about lighting and acoustics. We want that to say that it's a welcoming space, it's a space we can enjoy for hearing God's Word, being able to read and see the hymn on the page, that, all that kind of thing. But the two big things that really came up, one was the spacing in the, of the pews. Our old configuration of the pews, uh, and by the way, this was another pastoral care matter. From early on, we, we were getting the message, don't get rid of the pews. We are keeping our pews. Because I think once we started talking renovation and put that in the same sentence with sanctuary, 
some people thought of other places they had been where they got rid of pews and put in movable chairs, which is fine for some places. But that just was not on our radar, but that's what people assumed. And so we had to say, we're not getting rid of pews. And then down the road of the process, we had to start thinking, what about the spacing of the pews? Because our pews were very close together. You had to go in sideways and kind of shuffle your feet to get from the end of the pew to the middle. And for some people of, let's say, bigger size, that's more of a problem. But even for slimmer people like our consultant, that's still a problem. You have to turn sideways to get in and out. And so we spaced those out. Well, that brought some consternation, some discussion. Won't we have to get rid of pews? That means we can't seat as many people in here. And all kinds of concerns come up. And so that's where you come back to the principle of form follows function. Well, what are we trying to say here? What's the function of this place to gather people in? And granted, we don't have as many people as uh, the congregation did back in the 1940s and 50s. So maybe we don't need to cram them in as much. Or maybe having the wider spacing between pews will welcome people that they realize, oh, this is more welcoming, more open, more inviting, things like that. And so we wrestled through issues that way. But with that thinking in mind, you know, what are we doing here? We are here to be the church, to bring people in to proclaim God's word or hear the word proclaimed and ultimately eat and drink at his table, receive baptism, receive the Lord's Supper, all of this in a very welcoming, open space. So that was one issue there. But the biggest one was really the baptismal font. If we are all about, as we've talked about so far, the gospel being proclaimed and the sacraments being administered according to Christ's institution, we want those things to remain paramount, primary, or I would say the phrase front and center. Well, in our church, the altar has always been front and center. It's even elevated on a few steps up from the nave floor. The pulpit and lectern are elevated up in the chancel area. Okay, so that's front and center. What were we doing with our baptismal font? Well, the original design had it right in front of the lectern, because I've seen that on original blueprints. Okay, so that's kind of front and center. But then around the 70th anniversary of the congregation, it got moved to the side kind of hiding behind a pillar. It still got used during the service. It still stayed in one place because it's very heavy. But they put in a communion rail down on the nave floor on a platform. So they bumped that out. And then what do we do? We have to put the font somewhere off to the side. And so for years, I've been teaching, well, why is the font over on the side? What are we saying about baptism there? And I've even had people come in to the church and become members and then move on, and other people come become members. They come in and say, uh, Pastor, where's the font? I don't see it. Oh, it's right over there in the corner. <laughs> and it's very awkward when you're performing a baptism, you know, as the pastor performing the baptism. I'd have to look around the column just to see people or communicate parts of the baptismal liturgy, right? So how's this confessing what baptism really means, sticking it off in a corner? And most people will say, well, hey, the baby or the adult still got baptized. That's what counts, right? And that's true. So there's, again, there's nothing commanded or forbidden in Scripture that says thou shalt have a font here, there, or somewhere else. Nothing like that. Or even to have a font, period. But if you're going to have one, what does it communicate? So then I started in the process of discussing these things, thinking I want the font front and center. And I'm thinking up front down the steps from the altar on the nave floor, thinking that's where people can see it. Then you can see the word, the pulpit and the lectern, and the sacraments, the altar and the font, 
all in one big view, okay? That went fine for a while. We could have put it other places. So we talked about all kinds of details. Well, how will people get to the communion rail? What about a funeral? What about a wedding? All these kinds of things come in. Okay, okay, we'll talk about them. And uh, you want to know where we ended up putting the font? In the back of the nave when you first come in. So if you come in the main doors into the church from the street, you come up the steps in the main doors, you're in the narthex. First thing you see when you enter the sanctuary from the middle of the narthex is the baptismal font. And then down the aisle, down the distance, you see the altar in the background sort of thing. It's a cool shot if you see a picture of it, by the way. But what are we saying by putting the baptismal font there at the entrance to the nave? We're saying baptism is our entry into the church. We're saying that when we come into this place, we come in by means of our baptism into Christ. So it's a nice, very visual and physical reminder of that every time somebody comes into the church. And likewise, at the end of the service, when you leave, you go back past that font in most cases in our space. So people are reminded, okay, I'm going back into the world as a baptized Christian, a baptized child of God. And we now have the added benefit bonus of more and more people I'm noticing are they'll come to the font, they'll dip their finger in and make the sign of the cross upon themselves. We've never told them you have to do this. In fact, maybe only once or twice have I even mentioned it that it's a possibility, but it's a good reminder of our baptism. We're not doing it in the same way that the Roman church does of, you know, here's the holy water and and thou shalt or whatever, however they do that. It's just a gift people have been given here in in the positioning of the baptismal font. I'm going to take advantage of it. It also allows me to uh, conduct the divine service, the confession absolution leading into the divine service from the font. And there's a nice pastoral connection there too. When I'm standing at the font and we conduct the corporate confession and absolution, we have the congregation face back toward it so they can see the font. And then when it gets time for me to pronounce the absolution, I put my free hand on the font as I start the absolution. And then as I get to the part of, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, I'll bring my hand up to make the sign of the cross and then put my hand back down on the font so people can actually see, aha, that's where our absolution comes from, is baptism, the font very visual sort of thing. So what is the font preaching there? That's the source of our absolution. That's how we come into the church. Our sins are washed away. All kinds of things like that. And you just got bombarded by several sermons just in where it's positioned. And you don't even have to overtly say it. And it's reinforced week after week. And we can certainly talk about it in Bible studies or on a show like this and things like that. And, And then also just the freedom that we have in these different matters in the church, the matters of Adiaphora, there can be several different things that can be confessed based on the consideration of where you put it versus where it's in mine. And again, not to negate that there are practical considerations. Again, my dual parish, one of them built in 1883, the other one in 1908, I believe, you know, very old. And as it comes back to even the first example you gave with the pews and so forth, I have ministered to some of my shut-in folks that would say, I desire to be gathered together with God's people for the divine service. I would rather be there. And in part, they're not entirely shut in. They can still get out. But just some of the simple factors of narrow pews, 
right. make it difficult for older folks to get in there and to navigate those, especially if you're working with a walker and a cane and those sorts of things. And, and again, I'm not saying go in and rip out all the old beautiful pews or anything, but you consider these sorts of practical matters in along with the theology that relates back to, which I think you've just summed up really well in two examples here, which is it all comes back to what the church is and what it exists for. It's for the gospel ministry. And we want that proclaimed and lived out. We want people to come and receive that through these divine gifts. And of course, when folks are shut in and unable to navigate getting into, in my case, older churches even, and so forth, we'll certainly bring the gifts to them. But as we believe and confess that, we want those sorts of considerations to how does this best serve the gospel? And then a little bit deeper theology on that beautiful confession with the baptismal font. I do the same thing. We literally just don't have the space to do it at the entrance of the church. It's very narrow. You come in, there's double sets of doors in both of the congregations I serve. And there just would be no room to even get into the church if we put the baptismal fonts there. But they are in the middle, in the front, down on the floor, like you talked about, you were considering originally. And I do the same thing. Confession and absolution happens right there. And I always say, I want you to see your absolution through the baptismal waters. There I stand behind it, and they see it literally through the font. They're looking through the font. And again, yeah, just a beautiful sermon of the gospel proclaimed just in where we stand. And so it becomes, once again, very pastoral as we want to convey the gospel to them. Right, exactly, yeah. So the form follows function, and our Christian confession blends nicely with what does the space preach? What is it speaking? What is it saying? Another feature we wove in is we wanted to highlight natural materials, because we have wooden pews, wooden pulpit, wooden lectern, a stone altar, stone font. So that's what sparked us to say natural materials. What does that say? Well, it says we are part of God's creation. It also says that when Christ comes to redeem us, he's coming to restore a whole fallen creation. I mean, there are a lot of things you can do with this. And then all of these created things are brought into his service to proclaim his goodness, especially his salvation on the cross. So we kind of steer away in this kind of a confession from, let's say, the uh, you know plastic flowers or something like that that stay on the altar week after week and get all kinds of dust, or plastic light types of things that you can barely tell it's even lit, like old lamps that you might plug in or battery-powered, whatever. But we're thinking, okay, what's authentic? What's accessible is another term. Now, this is not biblical or confessional, but things that we wanted to guide us. So the font, for example, is accessible. People can get to it, not just for a baptism, but also week after week when they come to church. These kinds of things. And this ties in nicely with our confession of faith that the gospel is for all. And that's where God is welcoming us to himself through his son, Jesus, making us his dear children in baptism. And uh, you can go on and on with that. Yeah, I think also it spurs another thought in me, too, as you just brought in using, what was it you said, authentic materials? Natural materials. Natural materials, that's it. Natural materials. That, too, has something that is confessional, I believe, in this sense. Sometimes we go through the Book of Concord, especially in the, the way the show used to be formed, where we we're basically just reading through the confessions and providing an audio commentary as we go. And there's a way in which that can always feel just very academic. Mm -hmm. And especially when we get into some of the heresies and things like that, and we say, 
oh, well, yeah, we, of course, reject and condemn that heresy because, you know, well, that's what you do in academic theology is that doesn't line up with what we believe this teaches. And we would do the same thing in a school setting and so forth. You know, a false math it would certainly you say, well, don't use that method because that arrives at the wrong conclusion. But again, I think these things are actually very practical. They certainly were for the Lutheran reformers, I think, because we can think about the heresy of Gnosticism, that the material things of the world don't really matter. And what really matters is sort of our spiritual existence. And I think this permeates just American thinking too much. We, we oh, become absolutely. very Gnostic. Yes, yes. And when we use, again, it's going to cost a little bit more. It's not going to be, quote unquote, as practical as flowers that can stay up there week after week and we just buy once and can change with the seasons and so forth, but that we put real flowers on the altar. Well, it confesses a lot of beautiful things just in those sorts of things that, hey, we believe in a God who created real physical things and created us in a physical body and took on a physical human body and is going to raise that body on the last day. And it just slams Gnosticism into the ground. That's right. You know, that's right. Just using, and, and again, there's a beauty factor that's tied in with all of this. But again, just it confesses what we believe about things, which are all throughout our confessions as well. All these heresies and things play into even the stuff of our worship space again, I think. Yes, and it highlights the things like the first article of the creed, right? That God made everything. He made it good. It's been spoiled in the fall into sin, of course. Christ comes to redeem it, but still it's his physical world. We can use it. In fact, here's a funny story about the uh, authenticity of real materials, natural materials. So the committee gets its work almost all done, and then we're coming to the flooring. We're keeping in mind the uh, natural materials thing. We're looking at all the budget numbers that were given to us by another committee, and we're thinking, okay, what to do about flooring? We had two options in front of us. One was luxury vinyl tile, LVT, and the other was porcelain tile. Now, of course, the porcelain tile is more expensive. The LVT, not quite as expensive. And with all the other budget numbers, some we had to take, others we chose to take and wanted to stay with and all that. The committee thought we don't really have enough left for the porcelain tile, so let's recommend to the voters the LVT, luxury vinyl tile. The look was very similar. We got it approved by the acoustics people that we were working with. Well, that'll work, right, for the sake of the organ and, and acoustics. Take it to the voters, and we had several voters object to that plan. And I'm sure some of them, were th when they heard vinyl, they were thinking the tile in their kitchen you know, more squishy, softer, but this is not the same kind of tile. We tried to explain that to them. It's not the same thing. You might see this at, say, I don't know, the hospital when you walk in the lobby. It's very sturdy. It's very hard. Looks great, that sort of thing. Nope, nope, we're not going for that. So we want the porcelain. And so I had to stand up in front of the voters and say, all right, folks, if you want the porcelain, it's this much more, and put the number out there. I said, we got to raise that in, what was it, two or three weeks, whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> or at least promise that we are on the way to raising it. And sure enough, the congregation stepped up and said, we want the natural materials, the harder surfaces, that sort of thing. And just a little uh, inspiring based on the teaching that comes through Scripture and things we've talked about from the Book of Concord, and maybe a little prodding uh, based on the budget there. So a lot, lot of fun. Lot yeah, of fun. <laughs> well, and a wonderful thing when the teaching comes through like that, it reminds me very 
different sort of setting, of course, but, you know, Martin Luther's to bring back receiving the Lord's Supper in both kinds, you know, it's just teach, teach, teach to the point where they say, well, how come we're not receiving the wine, Christ's blood right, alone? Right. Okay, we've got there. It took several years. It's but, about yeah. time. <laughs> but, uh, and then that's a lasting confession that will last on for years as well, too, that, you know, we didn't skimp when it got to the tile. That's and, right. And that'll that's be a right. point of pride for the Christians to confess. It can obviously go the other direction, maybe just a, a moment here as well. You talked about one of the biblical principles is considering how they built the tabernacle and the temple only right. using the best materials. There's always, of course, the danger in this too, that you become too prideful in it and caught up in the things themselves. And we want to avoid that pitfall. And we're certainly not encouraging such a thing. I mean, you think of the Jews, especially by the time Jesus gets there, they've completely misunderstood and forgotten what the temple was always really about. And they're just so wrapped up into it that when Jesus says, I'll destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days, and of course, he's talking about the temple of his body. They don't even see that because they're just wrapped up in this beautiful, oh, this is, our ancestors built this, right? You know, and so we want to avoid that pitfall as well. But I think there can be a godly pride in saying, yeah, we stepped up to the plate and we didn't skimp even when it came to the tiles here. Right. And you know what, Sean? I have to confess this. Just between you, me, and your listeners. There's only five of them. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I took a lot of pride in this project and in the results of it. And for the last several months after we finished from, it was done, we moved back in July of 2019. And just about every week, at least once or twice, I'll walk through the sanctuary thinking, wow, this is beautiful. Thank you, Lord, for giving this to us and all this kind of stuff. And boy, glad we went through this, you know, contrary to my views for years of not wanting to do such a project. And turn the calendar year to 2020, and I was really looking forward to doing Easter Vigil and Easter Sunday in this space, because that's kind of a heart and core and center of the design concept. We are one of the few congregations in our area that celebrates the Easter Vigil, so we said, let's make that a linchpin, you know, the hope, the eighth day sort of thing. All right, Easter Vigil in the new sanctuary. And guess what happens in March? COVID comes. <laughs> We're locked down. We're not even in there for Easter. And so a few weeks ago, I, I jokingly told my uh, Bible class, I said, yeah, I think God was teaching me humility there, not to trust in the things, but to trust in him. <laughs> yeah. But, but at the same time, yeah, it, it is such a shame because it's like, we built it for this purpose. Yes. yes. And, and it is God-pleasing. Yes. And it would certainly be a God-pleasing worship. But yeah, yeah. It, it is disappointing. And so you keep the main thing the main thing. Right. And, and I know the gospel gifts were delivered even through the COVID weirdness right. of the time yes, and so yes, forth, as we've yes. all strived to do. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I think would be important to talk about, you brought up in the first part, was considerations of art and how we use that in the worship space. Right, yeah, art. This really, a lot of this falls into what the confessions call adiaphora, things neither commanded nor forbidden or indifferent things, and we want to admit that. But it also falls under the category of ceremonies, and we want to do this in a responsible way from Scripture and our confessions. You know, what are we confessing, like we've been talking about all along? But artwork is also a first article gift. You showcase the talents that God has given to an artist or a team of artists, and you use that beauty to communicate the gospel. So here's our story when it comes to artwork. Our congregation's name is Hope. We had our consultant come and meet with the committee, met for a full day, end of the first day. He says, let's go up into the sanctuary and just start 
brainstorming some ideas to get the creative juices going. We go in there, turn the lights on, and our consultant says, wow, I forgot about these windows. I said, you forgot about them? When were you here? He did his field education there back in seminary days. He was a a year ahead of me in seminary, and I never knew that. So anyway, he talks about the beautiful colored art glass windows as jewels. They reminded him of jewels in the New Jerusalem in Revelation. So we start kind of spitballing and talking about this. Hey, our name is Hope. We're looking ahead. We're thinking New Jerusalem. We're thinking eighth day, new creation, eternal life, all this kind of thing. And then I believe it was our consultant who threw in there. And don't forget, you guys do the Easter vigil, which is another looking forward to the eighth day of Easter Sunday. And this was just all gelling together. And so we start thinking about artwork. And then one day after that, maybe a few weeks later, I'm walking through the sanctuary for some reason. And all of a sudden it hits me. We have four columns on the left-hand side and four columns on the right-hand side. Put those together, you get, hey, eight columns. Eighth day, eight columns. I look above, we have these beautiful round arches between the columns, and then between the arches, this kind of triangular space, we've got eight spaces for artwork. This is just all falling into place here. So we started saying, let's talk about eighth day artwork you know, last day artwork, you know, new life. And so we went through a whole long process of saying, okay, what Bible stories do we want to depict in this artwork? Because artwork catechizes. Artwork teaches the faith. So like your young son, who's how old now? Just shy of two, so over a month and a half. A month and a half, yeah. So he's shy of two. He's getting to the point where he'll be looking around a lot more, but maybe not participating by reading and, and holding the hymnal, right? Well, he might need something to look at or to be taught by. And that's how stained glass windows started. They were catechisms or Bible stories or things like this, catechetical, I should say. And so the teaching tools. And so that's what we wanted the artwork to be is how do we teach the faith? And so we came up with all kinds of Bible stories that would lead us in the eighth day. Got two Old Testament stories, Noah and the ark after the flood, the uh, people of Israel crossing the Jordan into the promised land. Uh, New Testament stories, we have the wedding at Cana, the water and wine, and then we have the uh, ten virgins depicted in there, the, the wise and the foolish, right, looking for the last day. And then the other four pieces of art are some form of Christ coming at the end of time to rescue us, you know, him coming in the clouds or him sitting on the throne with the great white multitude or the new Jerusalem with the lamb and the river of life. Or one of my favorites is the uh, depiction of the uh, wedding banquet of the lamb and his bride, the church. And what these pieces of art, the way they're lined up in the sanctuary, are meant to do is take your eye from the back when you walk in and go up toward the front, and where is this eighth day? Where is this supper of the Lamb? Where is this new wine, this new life, all of this? We find it at the altar. The word proclaimed, the sacrament of Christ's body and blood on the altar there. So all of this kind of to proclaim, like we've been talking about, the gospel of Christ, the sacraments he's given us. So art can be very catechetical and used to proclaim as well. Yeah, and one of the things that we lack on this show, especially in our former way of just going through the Book of Concord, is being an audio radio show. We would sometimes talk about the woodcuts that are included in the Book of Concord, especially along with the catechism. 
but you know, difficult to show them when you're doing an audio radio show. And I actually wish that I could just have a video show of this and we could walk through your sanctuary oh, and yeah. see some of those things that you're talking about. Maybe that's a thought to do another time to do a, a put vlog. It on YouTube yeah, or something. we'll put it, a, a link to it or things on KFO. That's but again, yeah, the, these things teach. Exactly. And what do they teach? They confess the faith. Which brings us back to, again, the main principle right. that we had in starting with what the church is. It's the gospel. It's the proclamation of the gospel, the delivery of the gospel. It's just, it's a beautiful confession. Well, with just a couple minutes left in the show here, great honor to have you on and to talk about your experience. But then again, relating back to what are the principles and things that we want to consider in confessing that faith. Go ahead and give us your concluding thoughts about why Concord matters for the worship space. Well, thank you. It's been my honor to be here. As you can tell, it's a joy to talk about these things. I would just keep circling back to that Augsburg 7 of we're here to proclaim the gospel and give out the sacraments. That's what guides me and you and every other pastor and congregation and all that. But the second part of that, too, I think I'll pull in uh, Article 24 of the Augsburg Confession here on the Mass or the communion service, and I'm very struck by how we've always confessed this. The Mass is held among us and celebrated with the highest reverence, doing things well. And people enjoy it when you do it well, and people are drawn in when you do it well and with reverence, because then Christ is glorified, and they get to be comforted in his salvation. So whether it's by a renovation or building a new building or just giving some spot improvements here and there, hopefully these principles can help. Indeed. God alone be the glory. Thank you for glorifying God, both in the work as your pastoral work, very pastoral work of leading your people through a beautiful renovation at Hope Lutheran Church here in St. Louis, but then also beautiful glorifying of God as you've confessed the faith and let us in how we understand and think about what are things to think about as we consider the worship space we in. We thank you so much for joining us for Concord Matters today and discussing why Concord matters for the worship space in the Christian church. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.